Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Jeffrey Stewart, Associate Professor of English at Tokyo University of Science. Dr. Stewart, welcome back to Lost in Citations. Great to be here again. So this is Citation 77, and last time you were on the show was Citation 17. So a lot has transpired since then. And uh, your room, your room sounds quite quiet. Normally when I call you, it seems like there's a lot of debauchery going on, but now it seems serene. What, what's going on? My wife made a point of taking our baby daughter outside <laughs> the duration of this interview. It's very, very, that was very, very generous of her. It was, it was. I owe her one. Nice. All right. So we're in the midst of a little bit of a academia drama here. And so I'd like to kind of set the scene for... For people, if you listen, if you listen to Citation seventy five, we talked to Jeff's colleague and co-author Tim Steckel. So, if you haven't listened to that, please push pause and listen to that now. Also, if you haven't listened to Citations seventeen, please push pause and listen to that now. All of these uh, papers are connected in this storyline that we're going to talk about today. And I guess first. Just to give the audience a bit of a background, I'm just going to list the characters that I know, and maybe you can give sort of a brief background. Well, you can you can take it however you want. Either you can you can give some brief background about the characters, or you can give the the synthesis of what's happened. So the characters that I have found are uh-huh. Tim Steckel, Stuart Webb, Stuart McLean, Paul Nation, Aaron Batty, Jeffrey Pinchbeck, uh-huh. and the Jout. Uh, the militant wing of Jout, which is the SIG uh, vocabulary group. Right, right. <laughs> A large cast of characters there. And uh, Citation 17 was a paper that you wrote, uh, remind me, with uh, Stuart McLean, yourself, who, who else, in 2020? Aaron, Aaron Batty. Okay. And then Tim Steckel was the lead author of Citation 75, and that was Tim Steckel and who else? Yourself? Uh, okay, so uh, myself and my colleagues have done a lot of work on uh, vocabulary testing. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, the, the Citation 17 paper was myself, Stuart McLean, Aaron Batty. And we showed, we, we took a number of different vocabulary uh, test formats, such as, you know, multiple choice, um, you know, meaning recall, where you see the word and you got to write the meaning of the word from memory, uh, you know, in your native language and so on. Mm-hmm. And to sum it up, we found that the the best correlation of reading, all else being equal, was with the meaning recall format above others. And then um, unrelated to that, uh, Tim Steckel, along with Stuart McLean, who was my co-author on that, coincidentally, and Paul Nation of University of Victoria, um, they they did a commentary for the journal Studies in Second Language Acquisition where they just talked about written receptive vocabulary uh, tests in general. And uh, that commentary got a response from Stuart Webb of, I believe, University of Western Ontario, who is uh, originally Paul Nation's PhD student, but is Mm -hmm. now a very well-known and respected uh, researcher in, in L2 vocabulary studies. He disagreed with many of the points they had. And then for the response, um, Tim invited me to come on and, and help with that paper. And so just recently, along with Stuart Webb's response, a, a reply by us was also published. 
All right, so this is kind of interesting because the 2020 paper, again, hopefully people can follow along. The 2020 paper, which is citation 17, predicting mm -hmm. L2 reading proficiency with modalities of knowledge, uh, vocabulary knowledge, a bootstrapping approach, mm -hmm. that was published in language testing. And right. if I remember correctly, uh, now correct me if I'm wrong, but Tim told a story on his episode that he was actually a blind reviewer for language testing. And the paper, Limitations of Size and Levels Test of Written Receptive Vocabulary Knowledge, was actually declined at language testing. You and can expected it, yeah. Yeah, isn't that interesting? And then and then Stuart McLean said, you know, what, what should we do with this? And then Tim Steckel kind of reorganized it and then submitted it to studies in second language acquisition. I thought that was very interesting. I yeah, never, it's what I a never, small world it is. You know, they send him the paper. He's like, you know, I've already read this. I rejected this. <laughs> <laughs> do you think Stuart was aware of it at the time? Or do you think it was just no, chance? I, I, I doubt it. Although I have noticed that um, researchers I work with get really quiet about their work because you never know who's going to review you. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. So, all right. So the, the Steckel paper was Steckel, McLean, and Paul Nation. So uh -huh. you, you weren't involved in that paper. Can you can you give us a reason? Because you're heavily involved in two papers after. Um, so why weren't you involved in this paper, but you're heavily involved in the rebuttal to the rebuttal? It's possible I was asked and I just said no. Um, because I know that Stuart, Stuart's a really busy, Stuart McLean mm -hmm. is a really busy guy with a lot of papers going on. He's got his, his finger in a lot of pies. So from time to time, he'll ask me, he'll say, hey, I got a great idea for paper. I got some data for it, but I can't lead it up. Would you like to do it? Mm -hmm. And in the past, I've passed on them, and then they wind up getting published with another first author. So it is possible he asked me to help out on that, and I just declined because I was too busy. But I'm not sure about that. You'd have to ask him. Okay, so the, the Tim Steckel interview, um, mm -hmm. we talked about the paper Limitations of Size and Levels Tests of Written Receptive Vocabulary Knowledge. So again, if you haven't listened to that, please listen to that. And then Stuart Webb um, wrote a piece in the uh, Critical Commentary section, A Different Perspective on the Limitations of Size and Levels Tests of Written Receptive Vocabulary Knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, also in studies in second language acquisition, which I have read. And I, again, I recommend people uh, push pause and read that article. And then the paper that we're talking about today is mm -hmm. also in critical commentary. What the research shows about written receptive vocabulary testing, mm -hmm. a reply to Webb. And this is where you get involved. And you are the lead author with Tim Steckel, Stuart McLean, Paul Nation, and Jeffrey Pinchbeck. So mm -hmm. I think the listeners are familiar with all of those except for Jeffrey Pinchbeck. How, where, where does he fit in this picture? He's a researcher, at assistant professor at uh, Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. Mm -hmm. And he's very well known for his work in uh, corpus analysis and building word lists uh, based on corpora. Okay. So it's really valuable getting his uh, input in the background there. It's kind of interesting because you were the second author on the 2020 paper, mm -hmm. again, which we talked about before. Yeah. Why, why did you become the first author instead of McLean? It would seem that following the thread, McLean was the first author of 2020. He should be the one that writes the rebuttal, the rebuttal to Webb because the Steckel paper is really based on a lot of the things that you found in the 2020 paper, right? 
Sure. I, it was really up in the air which of us would be first author on the, the 2020 language testing paper. And at the time, as of now, you know, I'm tenured, so I, I really wasn't too worried about it in terms of, you know, getting recognition for it or getting evaluation points for it. So it was just kind of like flipping a coin on that one. Okay. Um, but yeah, but with, with this particular one, um, I'll tell you the background of how I got involved in the... Uh, yeah, the, and I, I'm curious about the timeline, too. Like when, like when did you know the web rebuttal was coming out? Because again, you weren't an author on the the the, the paper which he you know wrote against. Essentially. Okay, well, I'll, I'll tell you how it happened. Funnily enough, we in another combination of us have yet another uh, sort of exchange with Stuart Webb coming out in in studies and second language acquisition. This is in so, December, I think Tim mentioned that. Exactly, that's okay. the one. But. The, the the timeline's strange because this one got published earlier, okay. but the other one got set in motion earlier. So around March or so, I can't really remember the exact timeline, Dale Brown contacted us, who's another Japan-based vocabulary researcher. And he contacted myself and Stuart and Tim and said, I got invited to uh, do this kind of commentary um, for SSLA about lexical units, like word families. Like if you know the word you know, author, do you also need to learn the word authority and authorized? Just to give a hypothetical example, um, you know, these word families. So it, it's his opinion that um, it should be more finely grained than that, you know, like you, you can't just assume that someone knows authorized, you know, authority, for example. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of researchers prefer to use broader word families and just test one of those words and then assume learners know the rest of them. Mm -hmm. So he brought us on for that. So we received a copy of Stuart Webb's overall commentary. And along with other researchers, we were all going to write little 1,500 words on what we thought of what he said. And then he's going to summarize all that with a, with a response to everybody. Mm -hmm. While we were working on that, um, Tim Steckel got a, a hold of us and said, you know, funnily enough, I just got an email from SSLA with another commentary by Stuart Webb, this one about my testing paper from, from last year. Mm -hmm. And so while we were talking about um, the, the paper we were doing on lexical units, the paper he was doing would come up because they're so interrelated. In fact, we have a section on lexical units in this paper we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. And so the conversation would turn to it sometimes. And I had all these ideas because um, really testing is more my wheelhouse. So the paper he was working on was probably more suitable for me than the, the lexical unit paper anyway. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, oh, you should say this and then say this, you know. And then eventually Tim was like, well, how about you just come on board and do that one too? And I happily accepted that. And I worked on it for a bit and uh, I helped with some drafting. And then Tim said to me, you know, I, I got a lot going on. I mean, as you know, Tim, you know, leads up a curriculum in, in, in the University, Prefectural University. So he said, how about how would you like to head this up? And I said, sure. And I thought, well, this is cool. Maybe I'll be second author on this one. But he was generous enough to give me first authorship on it. So when when Webb reads this paper, mm -hmm. what what do you think his perspective of it is? I mean, he had to have read the 2020 paper, right? So yeah, I, I'm just kind of curious. Like, you know, keep your keep your friends close and your what is it? What's the phrase? Keep your keep your friends close and your enemies closer. <laughs> Right. So it's like I feel like if we're having a sort of a, an exchange, a battle here of words and then all of a sudden a new general emerges 
I mean, is he aware of you? Because it's almost like this hidden, this like, because you are the second author of the 2020 paper. Yeah. From his perspective, is he thinking, wow, well, who's Stuart? Or do you think he, he knows who you are? Or do you think it was like a surprise? Or how do you think oh. he took it? Oh, we, we've met before. I don't know if he remembers this, but I met him way back because he used to live in Fukuoka oh, in really? southwestern Japan, uh, where you are right now, where I was for many years. I remember back in 2004 being at a cherry blossom party and seeing him there like when I was just starting as a master's student. And uh, then around, I don't remember the exact date, but around 2013, we had the, the vocabulary symposium for the, the JALT vocabulary SIG in Fukuoka. And I believe he has a family connection here. So we asked him, would you like to come down as our sort of plenary speaker? And he was really happy to accept that invitation. And, you know, he was very personable and friendly and, you know, a good guy. Um, and he, he was, yeah, he seemed really supportive of my research up to that point. Like, I, you know, I cited him a lot, um, things like that. But I, I wasn't really involved with this whole thing until, you know, just the past few months. Do you know it's another interesting thing? Um, so I read, you know, I kind of, I, I, I like, I like the, this kind of stuff where there's discussion. I, I wish this, these things would happen more often. I think I referenced it in the episode with Tim. The only thing that I can remember happening in, in the field that I'm interested in was in the nineties, which I, which I loved. Um, mm -hmm. so I was really reading as much as I could about this stuff. And in the web paper, mm -hmm. he thanks a few people for helping him with the comments on the drafts. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, Paul Nation helped him on an earlier version of the draft, which I thought was as like, wait, whoa, what's going on here? I don't know. Did you notice that? Paul Nation is the most open, probably one of the most open-minded researchers I've ever met. Um, really, really good guy. Um, I mean, Stuart Webb himself, I mean, I remember reading uh, the foreword to his recent uh, uh, book that he edited on vocabulary studies. And he was saying that uh, with Paul Nation, he has opinions and he's almost invariably right. And it might take you a while to realize it, but eventually you figure out he's right. On the very rare occasions Paul Nation has been wrong about something, he immediately takes it on board. And he'll, he'll work with anybody, he'll write with anybody. I remember the, one of the first times I met him, I kind of showed him a little study I had that sort of went against something he'd been saying. And right away he's like, hey, I think you got a good point here. There's no ego at all. So he'll he'll happily get involved with our paper. If someone writes a paper, you know, completely opposed to it, he's like, well, let me have a look. Yeah, yeah, you got some good points there too. But yeah, he has no ego whatsoever about this kind of thing. Oh, that's no fun. That's no fun I, for drama. I really like it. I, I think he's a great guy. And I've never met anyone who didn't have good things to say about Paul. No, I'm, I'm joking. I just mean as yeah. like a drama perspective, I was sort of looking, well, you know, it was Steckle McLean and Nation, and then Webb makes this, you know, critical argument against that paper. Right. But yet he sends an earlier version of the draft to Nation. I thought I, I thought that's like, you know, that 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 that's that's like that's like a foul if we're if we're playing basketball or something. I guess that's okay. I I I really like having him involved actually, because he made it clear it's like hey, let's not have these little camps that are feuding, right? Mm -hmm. Let's all discuss this, in, you know, in a really collegial way. And so I like that. I think that's cool. It is interesting, though, because he is still on this paper, on the paper we're talking about today. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he'll make it clear, um, you know, where he stands. I mean, one thing I like about uh, the sort of L2 vocabulary community is that people can have really strong opinions and it never gets personal. 
So another person like that is Badia Laufer. So she's another founder of sort of the field as a whole. And she really disagrees with us on this stuff, you know, in a big way. But she makes it clear that her opinion is separate from anything personal. And so actually, uh, Reading in Foreign Language, the journal Reading in a Foreign Language, they commissioned yet another article from Stuart McLean on other points related to this stuff. And it went against and what he wrote went against a lot of what uh, Laufer said. And what I heard from Stuart is that she emailed was like, you know, I got to respond to this, right? And it's just, it's, you know, it's nothing personal at all. It's just well, differences of opinion. You know, I was, I was kind of saying tongue in cheek, but I actually think this is the best thing that a field can do because mm-hmm. this is, especially as an, now again, I'm not, this isn't really my field, but as an up and coming reach researcher, this is when you learn the most because this is what, this is what all your advisors want you to do. Give us yeah. both sides of the argument, then synthesize it, then show us where you stand and show us how your research fits into this. And unfortunately, sometimes it's hard to find. A lot of times everybody agrees. And it's difficult to write these critical essays that, you know, these, you know, these doctoral degree programs want, right? Yeah. So this sort of discussion is great for someone who's trying to get into the field. I I think it does help. I mean, first, it's good to have these summaries of everything that's come, you know. Uh So I I think that's really valuable. Like, you know, a, a lot goes on, but. You know, it's, it's kind of like looking at the matrix where you just see the numbers constantly roll across the, the screen with paper after paper after paper. But it, it's good to have somebody who can just kind of synthesize the research and summarize it. And people like Norbert Schmidt and also Stuart Webb, for that matter, are really good at doing that. And I think that uh, Tim and, uh, and Stuart and Paul Nation did a good job with that with their own original article, you know. The so initial- in this paper – uh, again, I'll say the name of it again. Um, what the research shows about written receptive vocabulary testing, a reply to Webb. I saw a citation I'd never seen before. It was citation Norbert Schmidt, personal communication. That was that was you called him up and you can cite that. Yeah, you can do that. Apparently, <laughs> I like that. I gotta. I mean, I'm just joking when I say this, but it reminds me of that old Woody Allen movie where he's arguing with someone about what Marshall McLuhan said, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I got Marshall McLuhan right here." So, <laughs> That's kind of what what a, a personal communication is. So, I what's think. the context for people? Why why was that citation necessary? To what was it, an email or how does Norbert Schmidt fit into all this? Uh, uh, Stuart McLean is in touch with Norbert because Stuart McLean is in touch with pretty much everybody. But um, it might help uh, if I just kind of summarize what Tim said, what the main points we got from Stuart Webb's article and our own response, just to kind of contextualize things. Yes, please, please do. So, I mean, you know, all these papers are about uh, vocabulary tests. As you know, they're usually on paper. They're usually multiple choice. They test thousands of the most common words in English, like the 5,000 most frequent words. Uh, Usually take items testing um, a given level, like say the first 1,000 words in English. So they test 10 of them. And if you get 5 out of 10 right, they go, well, you must know 5. 500 out of 1,000 of those words, right? And then they move on to the next level. Some levels tests, rather than like a size test usually only has about 10 items per level, but it goes out to like 14,000 words or 20,000 words. Whereas a levels test, you're just kind of looking at these kind of key, most important levels for, for beginner learners or for, you know, more intermediate learners, like, mm-hmm. you know, the first 3,000, 5,000, what have you. And then they might give about 30 items per level. So Tim kind of looked at the purposes of the tests, and those were things like check the vocabulary knowledge needed for reading things, 
selecting reading materials, tracking growth, pre and post, set goals. He derived that from reading validation studies and looking at comments that the creators of the test made, even mm -hmm. if they weren't specific purposes for validation, you know. Mm -hmm. And then, but those are typically what people actually use these for in real life when you look at papers that cite them. And then he kind of looked at the problems of it. So one is a multiple choice format. So with a size test, if you give someone, uh, you know, 10 multiple choice questions and they get five out of 10 and you say, well, you must know 500 out of a thousand words. The problem is if you got four M's on the multiple choice test and if you ask people to try to, their best to answer every question, which the test specifications for the VST, VST say you should do, mm -hmm. you're going to get about two and a half out of 10 right anyway. Mm -hmm. And so there's been a, a number of studies by people like Henrik Gilstad um, and some other people where they have students uh, take these tests and then afterward they interview them and they go, so what about this one? Why did you choose this? Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time they're like, I didn't know, I just guessed or what have you. And so it really inflates scores, right? Mm -hmm. And I think Tim was talking to you in your last episode. He was saying, well, for some of these, you want a threshold where you know 98% of the words. So you might go, well, what's the big deal? It's going to be a little bit off with the multiple choice, you know. But if it turns out you only know 85 or 80, let alone 70 or 60, mm -hmm. that, makes an that can make an enormous difference for, you know, things you can actually read, you know what I mean, for certain fluency activities and so on. Mm -hmm. And then the other issue, which I think I might have mentioned a little bit earlier, was lexical units where these tests usually just test like a base word mm -hmm. and, you know, establish establishments and all that. And they just test one and then they assume, you know, the rest. But when studies have been done where they actually test learners on the other words, very often they don't know very many of them. Right. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you got test length where the more you sample, the more accurate the poll. So let's say there is a referendum in Britain, you know, for Brexit or what have you. Mm -hmm. And so you ask 10 people. And you get six out of 10 say they want, you know, Britain to stay in the EU. Well, how do you know what's your margin of error on that poll? It's mm -hmm. going to be really wide because you only ask 10 people, right? Right. So the more people you ask, the more narrow your margin of error gets. And if you're trying to work out if someone knows, you know, 95 or 98 percent of the words, you need a pretty narrow margin of error mm -hmm. to, for that test to have any reliability. So we talked a little bit about, you know, expanding the, the test length. So Webb's rebuttal, and, you know, I encourage people to actually read his paper because this is just my interpretation of what his main points were. Um, he was saying, well, the Steckel's paper is premised on the idea that uh, these tests are for the purpose of reading, but that's not what the test was validated for. So as I understand it, he was saying these tests were made to check vocabulary knowledge and nothing else or pretty much nothing else, you know, like a very narrow usage. Mm -hmm. Uh, so what we did in our rebuttal was we actually quoted the makers of the test saying, that, you know, you, you can, you know, let's use this test for, for choosing reading materials and so on. And, uh, there were four basic tests that they, they looked at and that they cited here. There was uh, a test made by, by Tim, which I think he talked about the NGSL test. Yeah. So he kind of atoned for his own, you know, sins, if you will, and said, you know, I did this before. I don't recommend it now. <laughs> uh, he talked about the, uh, the vocabulary size test, which was made by, you know, spearheaded by Paul Nation, who's a co-author on these, the, the, the first, uh, you know, article in this response. And he, uh, he quoted uh, Norbert Schmidt, who kind of uh, helped develop the, the VLT, the vocabulary levels test, which Paul Nation started, but he kind of continued with. 
And he talked a little bit about the updated vocabulary levels test, the UVLT, mm-hmm. which was kind of spearheaded by Stuart Webb. And at various points, all of those people have made statements that suggest that the test could be used for those purposes, even if it wasn't very specifically, you know, a goal of a, a given validation study. Hmm. So what, what we were basically saying is, you know, if you just have a test where, um, you know, you give it, you get scores for a given number of students, but, you know, don't correlate that to reading. You know, that's not what it's validated for. Don't use it for pre and post test. That's not what it's validated for. If that was the case, nobody would be able to use these tests for much of anything. Right. And, one, one, and, and then we're talking about item format. And one thing I thought was interesting is in his response, he really steered clear of the multiple choice size estimation issue. So when he was saying these tests were validated for vocabulary knowledge, he didn't even bring up vocabulary size. But Mm. the vocabulary size test was very specifically supposed to estimate vocabulary size. It's in the name. Mm -hmm. And so I I think that's really something that should be addressed. Um, Maybe he was sort of tacitly conceding that point. But he he, kind of disputed that meaning recognition, uh, which is multiple choice tests, had a worse correlation to uh, reading. And he was pointing out there are a number of studies that show that you can get a correlation of, say, 0.6, 0.7, and so on. It varies study to study, right, depending on the sample and so on. And so he was saying, well, they do correlate. And um, what our argument there would be, it's not – first up, uh, there is a stronger correlation to reading with uh, meaning recall. And we're not saying that – a multiple choice vocabulary test isn't going to correlate to reading. Of course it is. You know, how could it not? But on average, you get a higher correlation with meaning recall. So why does that matter? That matters because if you're doing a study and you use a less sensitive measure and the correlation is weaker, there's a a higher chance you just won't find anything in your study. And so it's a more sensitive instrument and it's less prone to error where you get a statistically insignificant result, even though there actually was something there. So really a point of the the, the original paper was this is a more sensitive instrument, which can help you in your research, for example, and that kind of thing. But uh, he was really picking apart our study from 2020. Mm -hmm. But what we're pointing out, it's not just us. So Zhang and Zhang, they did a a meta-analysis of all such studies that use vocabulary tests to to track reading. So what a meta-analysis does, it's like a summary of all the research, but it adjusts for things like the sample size and quality of each study. It kind of weights them on on those types of things. And what they found in aggregate was the average correlation of the the sort of meaning recognition format or something very analogous to that was around 0.53, which is not a super great correlation. Mm -hmm. And then for meaning meaning, uh, recall, it was more like 0.66. Mm-hmm. So let's see what else can I say here. So then he was talk. Uh, I guess I'll just go through the other points while I'm at it. Sure. He was yeah. He was say, talking about how it's really difficult uh, marking meaning recall test. You know, with multiple choice. You know, you just kind of go through it A B C D. You got your answer key. But what we would say is testing has gotten easier with online tests uh, with these auto scoring whitelists. So if, like, if you ask Japanese students, you know, what's cat in Japanese? You know, they're going to say Neko. And, you know, they might write in, someone might write in hiragana, you know, in sort of uh, phonetic script. Someone might write in kanji, which is more like a pictograph. But generally, people are going to have very similar responses, right? Mm -hmm. 
with more complex words that have more meanings, it, it obviously gets more nuanced than that. But if you have software that lets you track these, this, you keep seeing the same answers over and over again. And what you can do is you can uh, press like a whitelist button in the software. And from then on, the computer will automatically score that as correct. And every time you, uh, you give this test, you can ask the computer, okay, did you see any new answers that you've never seen before? Mm-hmm. And maybe it'll be, you know, it'll be Neko, but there'll be like a space before it or something like that. Okay, whitelist that too. And the more you do it, the more it auto scores. Mm. And the more you give this test, the easier it gets to score it until you can reach a point where virtually all the possible responses, you know, I, uh, come up as auto marked. Because normally students don't know it. They just don't write anything. Hmm. But it, it, it just gets easier and easier. <clears throat> so the other thing I'd say is that this is getting a little off topic, but frankly, it's just not that hard to make a meaning recall vocabulary test. And, hmm. you know, people that look at this a lot and study this would, would, would certainly disagree and say, well, you know, hold on, there are multiple meanings to words and so on. But within psychometrics, vocabulary tests are seen as a very bog standard example of a highly simple, highly unidimensional test. And obviously there's more to it than that, but relative to things like speaking mm-hmm. uh, or listening even, uh, vocabulary, I would argue, is a, is a relatively simple construct to test. And so <clears throat> I wouldn't go so far as to say you can just make your own test for your own study and leave it at that. But, you know, you might have, like, say, a, a basement effect where your test is too hard and the reliability is zero because nobody got any answers right. But in general, I think if a researcher is studying a certain number of words, the best thing to do is probably to make an original test based on those very words mm-hmm. rather than use this kind of off-the-rack test that generally tests words at, 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 in, in various frequency bands. And it's true if you were making a multiple choice test for yourself, you know, you, you got things you really got to worry about. You know, you want to do a rash analysis and you, you, know, you want to look at this, do an extractor analysis and so on. But I mean, as, as long as you have iterator reliability on how you're marking the correct meaning recall answers, if you have even 20 items and say 30, um, there's, a, there's a good chance you're going to have a pretty solid research instrument that's, that's sensitive, I would say. So, I mean, that, that's the first thing. I'll speed this up. So no, then, take your time. Say whatever okay, you want. yeah, sure. So the second one is the, the word family thing. So he was saying that it's only really an issue with uh, lower-level students. Mm-hmm. And he's saying that it, it seems to diminish with higher proficiency students. But what we would say there is, well, how higher proficiency? Because, I mean, he did uh, one study with one of his master's students and uh, I, I think Iwazumi, maybe mm-hmm. I better check her name. But uh, with this with this master student where he co-authored, if you look at the highest level group, the highest level group are graduate students in a master's uh, TESOL program, mm-hmm. presumably at University of Western Ontario. But even they showed a difference uh, between native speakers and their productive ability with derivations. You know, like knowing the difference between established establishment and so on. So if mm-hmm. even, you know, L2 learners that are doing a, a graduate degree abroad have minor, ga- even minor gaps with the derivations, one would assume that for the vast majority of learners, you're going to see bigger gaps in that. And then, we, we, you know, we certainly agree that, you know, more research needs to be done in that area. And then we need to, you know, look at more proficiency levels. 
But what we would argue is that the prudent thing to do until we've done that research is to assume learners know fewer words, mm. fewer of these derivations rather than more. That seems like a, a bigger and riskier assumption to take. And he also said, well, you know, if you have these word families, you can really boil down a word list, right? Mm. Because if, if one word represents six or seven words or more, that really shortens the list. And he's saying, well, if you're testing each individual form of these words, you're going to have too many words to test. Your tests are going to be endless. But that's actually not accurate because the thing about polls is a poll of 100 people is just as valid for a population of 10,000 as it is for a million. What matters is the size of your test, not the size of your test proportionate to the overall population. So in actuality, you can keep the test the same length. And as long as the length is good enough for one, it'll be good enough for the other. And then the, uh, the third thing was test length, which ties into that. And he was saying, well, it's not just about the length of the test, it's about the quality of the items. If, if, the, if the items are good, then maybe you can get away with a shorter test. And it is true that in terms of uh, reliability, you'll have a better test if you have uh, you know, highly discriminating items. But as far as using a test as a polling method of vocabulary size goes, where you're kind of trying to infer how many of these words you know in the bigger population of words, uh, what really matters is the number of items. And we've actually looked at the, the testing statistic, the standard error measurement, uh, which accounts for the quality of the items themselves um, and the variance and so on. And we've compared it to just the sort of standard standard error uh, used in statistics for, you know, like a, a proportion, you know, estimating a proportion. And we found the standard error measurement doesn't really work well for size estimation methods. And we actually talked to J.D. Brown about that, and who's, who's kind of an expert in testing in, in um, SLA. And he was saying it's very sample dependent, that statistic. So, so yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I think that's uh, – I mean, I could talk a bit more, but those are the main points and our main rebuttals. I guess I would just say that um, in the end here, we really agree that there is uh, a need for more research on these things. But we don't agree with him when he says at the end of his paper there's no uh, evidence for our positions. I mean, there actually is quite a lot of research supporting what we're saying, including a meta-analysis of the entire subject. But what we find is that precedent is really strong. And there's a feeling that, you know, the biggest names in the field, you know, helped develop these vocabulary tests, you know, back in the day such as uh, Paul Nation and, and Norbert Schmidt. And I think there's kind of a feeling it's like, well, who are you or who are we to question that, right? Well, let's, let's talk about this, uh, this large-scale meaning recall test that is, is under development. Has it been used on a large scale? The, the, what's it called? Vocabula, vo, vocab level test.org. Can you talk about – because maybe – is that what they're saying? Like this hasn't been tested – or this hasn't been used logistically on like a very large scale, for example, of a university of 4,000 students, or is it, logistic, is it logistically feasible? Is that, the, is that what his argument is? I don't think he mentioned that test. I could be wrong, but I don't know if he made discussing that test. I think really what he was trying to do was defend his test and tests like it rather than go after something Stuart McLean was doing so much. Um, as but, far as that goes. But is that test 
feasible on a large scale? Has it been has it been um, utilized on a large scale? It, I mean, it would be best to ask. Stuart. I'm not so involved with it, so it okay. would be best to ask Stuart McLean. But I would say that incidentally, we're doing a bit of research, and we use Stuart McLean's tools to do it. And uh, we've actually kind of made a, a, a highly analogous levels test, but using Stuart's suggestions, like use 40 items, use meaning recall. And the, the reliability on it just blows all the multiple choice tests out of the water. Because before so, I read Webb's paper, that was my main concern with uh, the meaning recall tests, even on a class now – in your paper, you 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 argue that it, that it can be done as fast as a multiple choice. I just I just can't see it. Now maybe you're right. I'll, I trust your opinion, but I that was my main thing before I read the web paper, was that this the meaning recall test, although it might be more statistically valid, how mm -hmm. logistically valid is it? If you're a teacher with thirty students, like if you you're going to interview them now now and then now the software is what what comes up where. I guess that would be the next step. If there's a wide scale use of this software program and it's accepted in the field, then yeah. is that what's is that what the main argument is? Is like, hey, you know, this 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 meaning recall test might be great, but you know, you can't you can't execute it like we can execute multiple choice tests. Is that his main well, is that mean, reason why he, he responded well, so strongly? Well, I mean, coming up, that was true. I mean, in nineteen eighty five, I you know, like if you have paper and pencil, right? And you have all these learners, and they're they're sort of writing answers in their native language. Well, first of all, do you understand the native language well enough that you can mark that, right? right. I mean, that, that's one issue. But two, even if you can, you got this big stack of papers, and you got to go through it. You got to do judgment calls. You know what I'm saying? You, you got to, uh, you know, you, you might have a second rater, and then you want to both mark it, and then you want to correlate and see how how reliable that is, and how consistent you are in your marking. So that really is a pain. But if you – in an age where everybody's got what's, what would count as a supercomputer 50 years ago or even 20, 10 years you – know, 20 years ago in their pocket, it's so easy for people to just pull this out. You know, if it's for research purposes or just for you know, just general diagnostic purposes, have students type away in the cell phone. And then it collects all the data and you can even auto-score most of it. So it isn't as big an impediment as it used to be is what I would say. So why – why do you lean or why did you lean towards form recall at Qsondi? Form recall, well, that form recall is harder. So basically, th this is what Laufer says, actually. Um, if, if you look at, I mean, in her 2004 paper, she showed that she kind of took these, she ta talked about strength of vocabulary knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. And so she was saying, well, the weakest one would be a recognition format, which is multiple choice. The toughest one is form recall where you actually have to think of the word in your own mind and then you got to actually express it, right? Yeah. So that has more relevance for speaking skills and for writing skills. Okay, so yeah, that but, was uh, in my notes. That yeah. Th that article uh was brought up by Webb that that All right, that, let me just quote what he says here because this is where it gets a little bit confusing. Um for at least for me. He said, Steckel et al. argue that meaning recognition test formats overestimate knowledge. However, the same argument could be used to claim that meaning recall formats underestimate knowledge. And then within that paragraph, he cites the law firm Goldstein 2004, where they ranked, as you, as you mentioned, difficulty is one, form recall, two, meaning recall, three, form recognition, and four, meaning recognition. Mm -hmm. So as a reader, I'm thinking, well, if form recall is the most difficult – 
Why is meaning recall the test that you're, you, you think is the best going forward? Okay, well, the, the main issue there is it conflates two issues. Is the form recall most difficult because it's really the toughest thing? Or is it because English has very complex orthography? Uh, now, I do believe, and you know, studies have shown that form, yeah. Uh, yeah, even if you control for that, I think Stuart Webb actually did a paper on the same thing. Um, form recall is tougher even if you account for that. But, uh, but the orthography makes it way tougher. And if I'm not mistaken, um, Laufer's 2004 test likely required you to write the entire word. And if you put the E before the I or the I before the E, you get it wrong. I don't mean that as a big bash of, of Laufer, you know, but you, you got to operationalize it some way. But if you do it that way, it is going to be quite tough for students. Meaning recall maybe is the best going forward because then you don't have to worry about messing up difficult words for spelling purposes. That's Just right. Be, yeah. yeah. What Just, I would say is it depends on your purpose. Mm -hmm. So if you're doing something more receptive like listening or reading, um, I actually have a new paper coming out soon which shows that meaning recall is also best for listening, it appears. Mm. But it could be a different deal with speaking and writing. Then it could wind up well-being form recall in some form. Why did he make the point about bilingual and monolingual? Why was that why, – why do you feel like he made the point and is it an important point to make? Because as someone who's not really a vocabulary specialist, um, I told you before we started recording, I my – I started to lose concentration. I didn't know. I, I could follow the, the threads of the arguments, but that was one where I couldn't really understand um, why was it such a big, big distinction. Well, I mean, I, I would say that, as I recall, when he was writing that, he was saying, well, the VST is done this way, but their study does it this way. That's not the same way as a VST. Therefore, you can't compare one to the other. Mm -hmm. But in our paper... We never actually said, well, this is why the VST specifically is a terrible test. Mm -hmm. We were just saying we have these – the same as Laufer did back in 2004. We have these modalities of vocabulary knowledge. We've got you know, meaning recall, meaning recognition, form recall, form recognition. And she too in 2004 looked at it bilingually, L1 to L2 and vice versa. So we were doing more of a theoretical study about these, these uh, modalities more generally. But our 2020 paper wasn't intended to be a, you know, a big, exciting takedown of any specific test out there like the VST or the VLT. Okay, well, so, so personally, I don't think that's so, so relevant. Okay. You know? Well, someone listening to this, this podcast in another country who doesn't have access to vocablevelTest.org, how would you recommend um, you know, conducting a meaning recall test in your classroom? Like say a class of 30 people and you don't have well, the software program. If you're doing this in your home country, you might be fortunate enough that the, the learners all share an L1, which makes things a lot easier to start with. Mm -hmm. What I would say is um, I don't want us to come off like these religious fanatics that are, have, a, have like a, you know, are saying death to the VST. Or the I BL. prefer militant. Okay. <laughs> But, you know, militant fanatics. But I, I mean, I, I think there are cases where if, if you just need to kind of get a general sense of the vocabulary ability of, of 100 students you got because you want to sort them into classes. Right. Yeah. And let's say you're not so particular about their super specific vocabulary size. You just want to 
take the top third of the students on the test and the middle third and the bottom third and sort them out. Mm -hmm. For that purpose, you're probably just fine using the VLT or the VST or what have you. Mm -hmm. So, but what I would say is that if you're conducting of an experiment that uses vocabulary as a variable for whatever reason, I'm saying your results are probably going to be a lot cleaner and your, your, your measure is probably going to be a lot more sensitive if you go to the trouble of making a meaning recall test. And that but, might be more trouble if you don't have access to cell phones or computers. Well, how would you, yeah, how would you make the meaning recall test? It's quite simple, really. I mean, at its most basic, you have a list of words. You ask for a meaning. Uh, the students provide a meaning in their L1. And then you take the time to look up those meanings and see if they're correct, preferably with a native speaker to assist you. Mm -hmm. You work out a list. Um, what you can do is you can have two or three different people involved with the study independently score it and then correlate the scores and see if they're consistent with one another. Because you don't want to have three different people mark it and they all get different answers to the, 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 the test questions, right? Mm -hmm. But once you've established that and you've established those norms, what I would say is were you to give that test again, it's going to get easier and easier every time. But yes, there is going to be more overhead in marking that initially. And so really it's a question of how much effort you want to put into this. And again, if you're just trying to sort students informally uh, within your own institution, you're probably fine just using a, 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 an accepted multiple choice test. But if you're trying to get into a really good journal and you're worried that the, the effect size to what you're doing could be low and it might not be detectable, if there's a lot of error in your instrument, I think you're better off using me to recall myself. So what's, what's going on in your opinion with this JALT vocab SIG? Um like I said, at least in my field, the big argument was going on between, you know, McIntyre and Gardner, who are who are in Quebec, and mm -hmm. Sparks and Ganshaw. I think they were in Chicago, and then another person was Horowitz, who was you know uh, down in Texas. You know, you know, you, you got the the Spanish and English and the French and the English. Uh, but it seems like we have all these papers, and then you talk about Nation getting involved, who's a pillar, and now mm -hmm. you know you guys are involved. Um, mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Does, does that mean that some of the some of the top stuff in your field is coming out of Japan now? Uh, that that's really flattering. I mean, we're still, you know, I mean, Stuart Webb is a you know a really big name in the field, and you know, combined, our citations probably aren't you know half of what he got this year alone. So, I mean, we really got to keep things in perspective that way. Um, but I do think we might have a little more visibility right now just because we're relatively outspoken. We, we seem to be. And Well, isn't the fact that he, he, made, he, he wrote this paper validating you in some ways? Because if he didn't respect what you wrote, why would he waste his time, right? I mean, yeah, that, that, that's possible. It, it could be because it was in, in SSLA. Um, it, it, it could be just that we're, we're getting enough attention that some people are starting to take it seriously. Hmm. And so that might affect things like like peer review, for example. I see. Like if other people – like I, I've had cases where I write things and reviewers will quote me, you know. Hmm. So it, it does seem like there are some people out there that are citing us or referencing us when they, they make judgments on other people's papers. So it could be that it's seen as we're gaining a bit of influence. Not In the grand scheme of things, it's really small, but enough that someone might take note of it, I guess. So where does it go from here? So you, you know, at least where we are in the timeline, I don't know what's going on in December, but at least the timeline that's been published is you reply to Webb, you know, Webb had replied to Steckel. 
Steckel had built on McLean et al. So is it is, does Webb reply to the reply to Webb? Are we are we just gonna go into the weeds here, or what's what's? I, I, I get really sick of that. I think I think we really, to be honest, I think we need to tone it down a bit because we've we've been invited to do so many of these papers recently, and uh-huh. there's yet as I mentioned. Uh, so we got the one with Dale Brown coming out in December. We got this one, and then independently of this. Um, Reading, reading in a foreign language, they invited Stuart McLean to do another paper, and Body Alouf was replying to that, and he's replying to that. And I think that's, that's quite enough for a while. I think it's time for us to get back to some empirical research. Yeah, I agree. Maybe we shouldn't have too many threads of replies, but I say the more the merrier. Mm-hmm. I, I wish there was more of it in my field. What what my hope is, though, I mean, eventually the time for, you know, the discussion and debate, I think, though, it has to end and we have to get back to just doing research. And what I really hope is that mm. these commentaries inspire studies, regardless of what the findings might be. And I'm really hoping that we see another sort of generation of papers coming out inspired by this debate that can kind of take things in a different direction. Well, you're you're really, you know, putting a lot of research ideas on a silver platter for people that they want it. Well, um, I'm, I'm glad if I am, you know, cause, uh, for a while it was just sort of us here in Japan beating the drum. And, uh, I, I'm, you know, I'd be really grateful to see other people take this up and just see what they can find, you know, regardless of what the outcome might be, but just to follow up on some of these ideas. It's at the end of the interview. So I'm going to ask you a question. If you don't want to answer it, it's easy to cut out. Okay, go ahead. Um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of yours and I, I read your stuff and I know you're like a brilliant guy. Oh, thank the, you. The, I don't know. The, but thanks don't, no. don't sometimes you think I could, I could put my skills to use somewhere else. <laughs> 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 Instead of doing this, I'm not trying to discount it, but I, yeah, I, did. I okay. I, there's a few things there. First okay. up, I remember talking to Luke Fryer, who's a really accomplished person in the field. And I was saying, I kind of see myself as an engineer, and I see a, a test as a tool, right? Mm-hmm. And so I want to make the best and most precise tool, and I get satisfaction out of seeing people use those tools. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think you might have been saying in your, your interview with Tim, um, you know, uh, I, I'm not so interested in this vocab stuff, but it, it helps me do the things I want to do if I want to use a mm-hmm. vocab test as part of a bigger project. Yeah. So I get a lot of satisfaction out of you using if you can use those tools and you find they work a lot better for you. Now, of course, Luke Fryer is like, you know, I got more interesting things to do with myself than make tools for people. But uh, the other thing is, is although although I've really enjoyed researching vocabulary, I do want to get into more in-depth studies that kind of put these more relatively minor technical issues to one side. Mm-hmm. And kind of look at bigger questions that are more applicable to second language acquisition as a whole. And I've got some things on the pipeline I'm really excited about. I but I mean, even directly. beyond, again, we can cut this out if you want, even even beyond second language stuff. I remember you, you told me about your the friend of yours, I think, who, I don't know, just got hired by Google or something. And it had nothing to do, it had nothing to do with his, he had like no background in whatever, but he was just a smart guy. They're like, oh, you're a smart guy. You apply these principles to here. You can apply them to here. And it seems like the way you go about things, the way you think about things, you could be applying some of these things to, to different fields as well. And like uh-huh. your, your research might be read on a more wide scale level just beyond you know, vocabulary. Well, or I mean, second language. Are, are you happy? I mean, are, are, but I, don't mean, I don't mean it as it's like a disrespectful question. It's just 
It's actually high. It's probably a little too highly complimentary, if anything, because what you're implying is I could be working at Google. I don't think I could be. But uh, I, I guess what I would say with that is I, I kind of I came over here to teach English conversation in Japan. Uh, I liked it. I want to do it as a career. It's like, well, how do I go about that? Well, I should continue my education. I should do that. And I just kind of wound up where I am. I'm really happy with where I am and the kind of job I have. And it gives me a lot of flexibility to do whatever I want, which I wouldn't have in the corporate sector and so on. But to kind of give you the slightly more cynical version of it, I remember reading a book by Nate Silver, who's the, the guy that did 538.com, right. which accurately predicted uh, some presidential elections, some more accurately than others. Mm-hmm. But what he was saying is he was saying within, you know, um, the election industry, he's saying, I look like a good statistician, but I'm good enough to know that I'm actually not that good. Mm-hmm. And he was saying that if he, he knows that if he was working in uh, a lot of other fields, there's a lot of people smarter than him that could do better than him. And that they're highly competitive. Even if you want to get into like sabermetrics, where you're looking at, at baseball and things like that, there are so many people that know math that also love baseball. They're going to get in on that. And he said what he wanted was he wanted to kind of go to a, a niche where there weren't that many people that knew about the same thing, you know? Mm. And uh, I remember actually J.D. Brown, he has this thing, it's the story he tells where he's, he's a really smart guy, J.D. Brown, um, super smart. But he used to be a musician and then he was in the military and he uh, he, he kind of lost. He got tinnitus because of it. He couldn't be a musician anymore. Mm. So he decided to go abroad and teach English or what have you. And he, but he was saying that when he was a musician, uh, he always played the French horn. And the reason he played French horn, he said, was because he was a good musician, but he wasn't that good. And he knew that he was playing one of those sort of sexier instruments that we, we usually think of when we think of an orchestra. There are all kinds of people that are trying so hard to do that and fighting for those spots, you know, mm-hmm. that they could kind of be the lead in the orchestra. And he said, but who plays the French horn? And he said, there wasn't much competition. And I was a good musician. I kind of knew my role and I kind of did that. And, uh, I, and basically any orchestra in Los Angeles would call on me and this one other guy to do it. Cause there was nobody else doing it really. Mm-hmm. So he said that, um, when he did that, uh, he was learning about, you know, the field of English language teaching. And someone said, do you think you could help with these tests? Because these English teachers, they really don't like tests. And he said, and there was my French horn. And then he- <laughs> <laughs> so where I'm going with you is, no, I could not work at Google. And I'm not saying I got into testing because, you know, no one else was doing it. But I don't see myself as someone who's super accomplished in terms of psychometrics and things like that. I might just look pretty good relative to... Uh, this field because a lot of people got in this from the humanities end mm. and they're smart people, but they're, they're smart in different ways and they're, they have different kind of interests in that. Right. But right, I mean, right. yeah, I mean, I'm, but I'm, I'm really happy with what I'm doing and everything like that, you know? Well, and you're a mensch, of course, you know, you, you, you slum it with me sometimes and give me some advice, uh, you know, how <laughs> to, how to type, how to smart. type numbers into a calculator and such, such. So I appreciate that. I'm glad I can help any way I can. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I think I think we hit everything. Maybe I'll just give the real quick synopsis again. Citation 17 on the website was predicting L2 reading proficiency with modalities of vocabulary knowledge, a bootstrapping approach. Citation 75 was limitations of size and levels tests of written receptive vocabulary knowledge, 
Um, Webb responded to that. And then the episode you're listening to now is the response to Webb, um, which is what the research shows about written receptive vocabulary testing. Maybe on the show notes for this one, I'll just put all those links for people to read. Is that okay? I'm sure. I'm Sounds sure great. Yeah. They're all, they're, yeah. You can uh, go to our research gate uh, website where we actually have an author's copy. People can freely download. Okay. Uh, did we, did we hit anything? Did we miss anything? No, I think that's it. Well, um, well, thanks to your wife for providing us the safe space and uh, let's do this again. <laughs> All right. Sounds great. Good talking to you today. Lost in Citations is an audio journal that invites you to contribute your own interviews. If there's someone whose work you cite regularly and you'd like to hear more from them, then please feel free to arrange your own interview and submit it for consideration. For more information, go to lostincitations.com, where you'll find our guide for contributors. What we ask is you submit a five-minute audio sample before the interview so that we can help you with any audio quality issues. Then you can go ahead and record 45 minutes to an hour and submit it at lostincitations at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, we have Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter pages. Finally, a very helpful thing you can do is, if you like the work we're doing, recommend it to a friend. Thank you very much.